Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of New Books Network podcast. I am your volunteer host, Lee Pierce, rhetorician in upstate New York, and I am so excited today to welcome another rhetorician to the show, kind of a rare treat, Dr. Andre E. Johnson and his latest book, No Future in This Country, The Prophetic Pessimism of Bishop Henry McNeil Turner in the Race Rhetoric and Media Series at the University of Mississippi Press. No Future in This Country uh, is sort of a sequel to an earlier book that Dr. Johnson wrote about Bishop Turner. Um, And in this case, it's a history of his career, 1834 to 1915, specifically focusing on his work from 1896 to 1915. So this is sort of the second half of his legacy, uh, drawing on the copious amount of material from Turner's speeches, editorials, open and private letters. Uh, Dr. Johnson tells a story of how Turner provided rhetorical leadership during a period in which America defaulted on many of the rights and privileges gained for African Americans during Reconstruction. Unlike many of his contemporaries during the period, Turner did not opt to proclaim an optimistic view of race relations. Instead, Johnson argues that Turner adopted a prophetic persona of a pessimistic prophet who not only spoke truth to power, but in doing so, also challenged and pushed African Americans to believe in themselves. So I'm very excited to discuss this book. Uh, So Dr. Johnson, are you there? Will you tell the people a little bit more about yourself um, and about how the book came to be, some of its major themes, and your very longstanding relationship with Bishop Turner at this point? Well, first of all, Lee, thank you for having me uh, on, and thank you for engaging my work and sharing uh, my work with your um, superb audience and just, um, you know, sharing um, this work and it's something that I have been uh, studying and researching. I've been with Bishop Turner since 2005. So Mm. um, started in grad school, uh, my dissertation, uh, the prophetic oratory of Henry McNeil Turner when I finished in 2008. And and I love to tell this story about how I um, found Turner or, you know, and and, and, and basically, I'm, I'm going to give you the shortened version of it. Uh, the shortened <laughs> version is that, the short version rather, is that I, um, I knew uh, maybe in my second year uh, of grad school, uh, PhD studies, I wanted to study prophetic rhetoric. I wanted to study pro- uh, prophetic discourse. Uh, but one of my, um, one of my uh, committee members at the time, and 
mentors, John Campbell, uh, suggested that I, you know, find me a figure, he said. He said, find you a figure, mm. right, to attach whatever you find on prophetic rhetoric to, and it will make for an interesting um, study. You know, not just in theory, but now you have a real life living figure that you can study. And I said, oh, okay, that sounds good. And the first one, of course, came to mind was um, Martin Luther King Jr. But I said, well, you know, um, enough books about him and people are writing more books. Matter of fact, uh, one of my um, uh, whether the cohort, uh, Frank Anthony Thomas, uh, wrote his dissertation uh, on uh, MLK, examining the speeches of his last year uh, of his mm -hmm. life. So, uh, so King was, and then I just kept looking. I kept studying, looking around and just, oh, okay, having that in the back of my mind. And then I finally came uh, on just a Google search, just was playing around on the computer, just, you know, I, I don't know. I can't, I, I don't even remember what I was doing exactly, probably just surfing. And I ran across this speech uh, by Turner, 1868. Um, I claimed the rights of a man. Uh, a lot of people titled it, but it was on the eligibility of colored members to seats in the Georgia legislature. September 3rd, 1868. Had never heard of this Henry McNeil Turner before. So I began to read the snippets and I was hooked. I was like, oh my God, this is it. This is an awesome speech. This is the speech that, um, that this, it, it was all prophetic. It was just, I was like, what? how come I have not heard about this speech? This is an awesome speech. Uh, and, and so I began to start looking uh, for research on Turner and like, who is this guy? Learned that he was an AME bishop and, you know, um, learned a little bit about his history. But I, had, I did not see a whole lot of stuff about his rhetoric. So I'm like, oh, okay, well, maybe um, 19th century preacher, um, probably uh, spoke extemporaneous, no writings, no kind of, you know, material for me outside of this little speech that I found. Let me dig a little bit deeper and maybe if I can find two or three more examples, maybe I have enough for a dissertation. Maybe this will be my figure because I'm, I'm like, I can introduce this figure to the field. Yay. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and lo and behold, when I just dug just a little bit deeper, I started finding Turner everywhere. I'm like, wait a minute. He wrote over here. He wrote there. He had a weekly column in the Christian Recorder newspaper. And then I really started doing some footnote chasing on books and people mentioned Turner. And I went and tried to find that material. And I'm like, oh my God, this man wrote extensively. I'm like, I got all this stuff. Now my major concern is I can't use all this stuff. I need to select <laughs> which speeches I really want to um, examine. So Basically, um, that's what happened. Um, that's how I discovered Turner. And um, the dissertation, which was the first book, uh, The Forgotten Prophet, um, yeah, uh, Bishop Henry McNeil Turner and the African-American Prophetic Tradition, uh, looked at four different speeches uh, and the four different personas that I talk about uh, in the book and the dissertation, and then um, how he 
moved from what I what I am calling an optimistic prophet, where you know we're gonna all work together, let bygones be bygones, to 1895 when he you know. Uh, said that hell is an improvement as far as Negroes is concerned. And so, so the the study in the first book was how do you get from this optimistic prophet to a pessimistic one? And um, so the rhetorical trajectory with that. The book that we're talking about now picks up on that prophetic pessimism. I always knew that I had a second book in Turner maybe even a third, but I knew I had a second book because I stopped at 1895 uh, with the Forgotten Prophets. And for the last 20 years of his life, and maybe a little bit longer, but definitely the last 20 years, because we got that line of demarcation after 1895, Frederick Douglass died in 1895, and then you get Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896. So that, I argue, it's the, the impetus for this prophetic pessimism. So for the last 20 years of his life, I argue that he is a prophetic pessimist. And so um, the book No Future talks about how, how does one find space and place to articulate uh, a vision, to be a prophet to a bunch of folk who looked at Turner as a prophet, uh, a person that is preaching at this time and teaching and orating about immigration, like leaving America, like there is no future in this country for you. Uh, a person that is critiquing and slamming, and you're talking about shade. Oh my God, I wish we had time to really talk about some of that shade. The shade that he throws at people, uh, both black and white, just like, you know, he gives as good as he gets. And he comes back at you, you know, reading those debates were just exciting. I wish I could have really spent more time digging into that. But how does a person like that still maintains an audience, still remains in the church? He's a senior bishop of the AME church at this time. And I think, you know, when we, when we think about uh, figures like Turner, and especially institutionalists like Turner, who remain in the church, how does he stay in the church and navigate all of that? Because he is slamming fellow bishops, you know, with their positions. So the question becomes, how does he do all of that and still maintain a place, um, which I place him in, um, a, a place of um, an African-American um, oratory and, and keeps all of that together. And... Um, I, that, and that's what the book is. A, the, the book is really about. It's six chapters talking about the different um, um, contexts and and times uh, of his life, the major uh, things that were happening, and his responses to them. Um, also, I try to include the responses of other African Americans as well, especially ones that he disagreed with, so we can have a, um, a understanding of the um, tradition a little bit better that everybody didn't agree with Plessy v. Ferguson or the war, uh, the Spanish-American War, or even the, um, the election of 1900, definitely not immigration. And um, the last chapter when he talks about the flag is a dirty and contemptible rag, 
going into the 20th century. That was just not a good thing, uh, a lot of people thought. Um, very interesting story. I talk about the time that he almost um, was brought up on treason charges for talking about the flag. And it was Booker T. Washington, his frenemy at the time. I like to call him that because they were good friends, but they used to go at each other all the time as well, too. Because, um, as you know, Booker T. Washington was more of a conciliatory figure, um, wanting to work and trying to find a space and a place within the system. And Turner um, was like, none of that is going to work. Uh, <laughs> we need to um, uh, reclaim our own agency and do the things that we need to do. And so that's the book. And um, and um, it, it, it was a joy to research. It was a joy to write. And um, I don't know, maybe a third book is coming. Maybe I'll be back in a couple of years. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I love a book about the debates. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, I felt that too. I was like, oh, I want to, I want this whole debate, the play by play. Well, and so you raised a couple of, uh, I think, keywords, so to speak, for the book that would be good to unpack a little bit before we dig into, uh, you know, his actual, his actual oratory. So you mentioned um, a sort of prophetic pessimism, which, which there's a lot of rhetorical traditions that come to a head in this book, which is part of what makes it such a great read. I mean, so often not to throw shade at my fellow, writer, but you read, you know, it's like, oh, here's a bunch of examples of this one kind of rhetoric. And in here, it's very much, we have to almost make a new category for yeah. Turner because he's a little bit of some stuff, but not everything. So maybe we could let people know how you define the genre of right. um, that. And then also like how it's specifically an African-American pessimistic rhetoric and how it's maybe not not exactly the same as Afro-pessimism, which is a term that some of the um, folks might have heard. And then you mentioned Plessy v. Ferguson, which really seems to be the turning point, but I'm not 100% sure that uh, everybody knows what that is. So maybe we could kind of start there and then move into some of the chapters. Yeah, sure. Not not a problem at all. And and I am, I am now reshaping um, and um, reexamining uh, my uh, notion of prophetic pessimism because I have been asked this a lot and um, to kind of unpack it even more. So this is very helpful to me. So uh, we're good. The prophetic, uh, one of the things, let's just talk about prophetic rhetoric uh, first and then I bring it to the African-American prophetic tradition. When I began to start studying prophetic rhetoric in our field of study, um, basically what prophetic rhetoric looked like was, uh, quite frankly, a Western European understanding of prophetic discourse. And what we mean by that is, Darcy, when I was in grad school, Darcy's book, um, James Darcy's uh, rhetoric, uh, Radical and Prophetic Tradition uh, in America, uh, book was out, and it was like the main book that talked about the radical and prophetic tradition and others who wrote articles, used that as a foundation or a springboard to kind of examine uh, rhetoric and uh, prophetic rhetoric. And, you know, I have a seminary background, so I really wanted to move away from a religious, uh, biblical understanding of prophetic rhetoric. And I wanted to stay within the oratorical tradition because I think there are two separate things. I think the, the biblical prophets are definitely doing something totally different than orators of the 19th or even 20th century uh, and even today are doing. So I wanted to um, make sure that I had that separation. So I just stayed within this 
uh, oratorical tradition um, within our field of communication studies, rhetorical studies, so on and so forth. So what I began to understand is that first, there was really no definition, a working definition of prophetic rhetoric. So I tackled that in my first book, uh, and, and he came up with this working definition, which explicated in the definition, I, I, I didn't even know this until I wrote it down and started looking at it again when I was playing around with it, a four-part rhetorical structure. Mm. So this four-part rhetorical structure embedded in this definition could actually be used, and this is the argument I made in the dissertation and in the first book, could be actually used to see if a text prophesied or if a text itself could be considered a piece of prophetic rhetoric, grounded in the sacred, uh, the sharing of the real situation, a critique of judgment, and offering hope at the end. Those are the four kind of broad tenets, and I go into them uh, um, uh, each one a little bit uh, in the, um, the first book. But what I also discovered is that most scholars looked at prophetic rhetoric uh, only in two ways, apocalyptic or Jeremiah. The apocalyptic rhetoric, you know, hey, the world is coming to an end and there's nothing we can do. The only, the remnant will survive and a person saying that you just need to be a part of the remnant or the Jeremiah calling back the people to a covenant. The reason why all this bad thing is happening to us is because we got away from um, the covenant. And if you would just come back and do the covenant and be the covenant and do it better, everything would be all right. You know, it, uh, so um, I'm looking at that and I'm reading Turner. I'm reading Douglas, Ida B. Wells, Francis Ellen Walkins Harper, uh, Anna Judy mm. Cooper. Uh, I'm reading... Uh, I'm reading Black folk, and I'm reading um, 19th, early 20th century, and then uh, late 20th century uh, oratory. I'm like, wait a minute. Um, I think that there is something else going on. Every, I go back to my definition. I said, okay, my definition is this. This speech looks like a piece of prophetic rhetoric. But it's not an apocalyptic uh, speech. It's not a Jeremiah. They're not calling people. But matter of fact, for a lot of black orators, the covenant is the problem. Right. <laughs> don't, don't talk. No, we need to reshape the covenant. That was Douglas's critique, you know, even though he did a lot of Jeremiah. But as, as time went on, especially during Reconstruction, he began to reexamine that covenant. Uh, he never really left it like Turner. That was the big difference between he and Turner. Turner is like, uh, the covenant doesn't work because America would never treat black people right. So you can never appeal to that end. You can't appeal to that any longer. So I said, well, what's going on? Well, these other um, types of prophetic rhetoric pops up. Optimistic, you know, you know, um, Let's say it, it is like um, um, this, this, yeah, this, this notion of uh, celebratory prophecy. Let me just start there. Celebratory prophecy, the prophetic disputation, 
uh, the mission-oriented prophecy, and then lastly, of course, is what the book is about, the uh, pessimistic prophecy or prophetic pessimism. Because at some time, and, and this is also, Lee, let me just say this. This is a this is also a trajectory that many folk who adopt prophetic personas, and let me be clear, I'm always saying that a person is adopting a prophetic persona instead of being a prophet. Mm. Because only people can un the people that follow you deem you prophet. I mean, so uh you you can be a prophet for some people and not a prophet for others. But anyone can adopt a prophetic persona uh, as a rhetorical strategy, if you will. So when these people adopt these prophetic personas, um, especially in the black prophetic tradition, you see an arc coming from celebratory or a universal type of prophet to a pessimistic one. And so in the end, um, some of these same people who were just hopeful and optimistic end up on the pessimistic side. Uh, King does, Du Bois does, um, Richard Allen does, of course, Turner, um, and maybe a host of other, these other people that I have um, kind of looked at and not really written on like that, but just uh, beginning to understand this. So pessimistic prophecy is the, or prophetic pessimism is this whole idea that uh, I have tried everything that I could, persuasion, more suasion, everything, and nothing is happening. And so the, the mm. pessimistic prophet says, I don't expect anything to take place, to change, to, to make our lives better in the immediate future. However, I am still called to speak. I'm still called to address these issues. So it goes beyond persuasion to what I talk about in the book, bearing witness, that the prophet is now speaking up for the people that the prophet claims to represent and bearing witness. There's no persuasion. Matter of fact, I'm not, the reason why I can't even persuade is because in a pessimistic prophetic uh, persona, I am critiquing the very same people who at the same time I am asking or charging that should help us or should do the things that I'm calling them to do. Mm. So um, I, I just pulled a quote from the book. Uh, I talk about for many black orators finding the racism to entrench and the American covenant ideals um, not realistic for black Americans to attain. They become wailing and moaning prophets within what I call the lament tradition of prophecy. And that is what Professor Prophetic pessimism is housed in the lament tradition. In this tradition, the prophet's primary function is to speak out on behalf of others, to chronicle their pain and suffering as well as her or his own. By speaking, the prophet offers hope and encouragement to others by acknowledging their sufferings and letting them know that they are not alone. In other words, the prophet is speaking what the people are feeling and it's therapeutic for the people and that's where the hope is. It's therapeutic for the people because, hey, I'm not alone in this. I'm not. I'm not out of my mind. Somebody else is feeling like me. This great. I, I now I think I can, you know, make it a little bit. I can go on a little bit, knowing that I am not losing my mind. That this is real. That's happening 
um, to me. And so the, 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 the prophet then helps the people develop and reclaim. And this is what I talk about in the book as well, too, in the last chapter, that the prophet helps re, help the people reclaim their own agency to do the things that they are called to do. So um, when I talk about his immigration stance, for instance, uh, he wanted black people to go to Africa. Well, black people did not go to Africa in the numbers that he would have liked in order to do the things that he wanted to do once in Africa. However, two things. One, he did get um, a good number of people to go. and But secondly, and more importantly, what he did in the South especially was to help people understand that there is a way that you can reclaim your own agency by doing the things, again, that you feel called to do. You do not have to sit in this. And what I'm talking about is that black folk probably didn't, couldn't go to Africa. Whole lot of money, ships involved. But they sure did leave the South. Uh, yeah. uh, they went as far as their money took them. And so the point that I want to make, I hope I made in the book, is that Turner's rhetoric is emancipatory and liberating because he opens up a window for African-Americans and the people he claimed to represent to, he opens up that window for them to begin to imagine that life could be better if they just would just pick up a goal and, and non-violently, by the way, mm. just get up and leave. It's the, I mean, we, we talk about it now in um, social justice circles as, you know, not uh, submitting to your own oppression where you can um, reclaim your own agency and get up and 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 move now you know um, some places folk went it wasn't as good as the south or whatever the case may be but what turner was trying to get folks to do and to see was that yes we can do this because the belief was that black folk could not even imagine doing anything like that, like going to Africa or relocating or doing things that would help them and their family and not having to depend on um, white people for any type of support or, 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 or anything. And Turner is like, you can, you can do this. You do not have to be like you are. And he was part of the pro prophetic tradition is this whole notion of um, challenging the people to look to themselves and in themselves to do the things that they are called to do and believing not only in uh, a creator God, but also in yourself that that same spirit is working in you. So prophetic pessimism is this whole notion of speaking truth to power, claiming um, um I'm not, not claiming, I should say, that everything is going to be all right, that everything is going to be fine, but understanding that what I'm about to say, nothing is going to change in our situation, but I want you to know that I hear you and you are being heard and I am chronicling these pains and suffering and bearing witness. That's why we like to go back and look at those type of speeches, like the boys crying in the wilderness type of speeches and we just celebrate them because 
those are the ones that were still speaking in spite of. And what mm. I talk about in the book is different from nihilism. Turner never quits. Turner never goes to Africa himself. He never tries to escape. He stays in the South, in Atlanta, doing all of this, taking all of the indignities that everybody else took and was because he was part of the people. And that's another thing that I hope, I, another uh, idea that I hope I have began to start changing or bust wide open is this whole notion of the prophet being this soul, solitary, lone figure that goes up on top of the mountain by him or herself and then come down and uh, pronounce um, stuff to the people. No, prophets come from the people. And this whole notion of listening to the people encourages and strengthens the prophet and leads the prophet to say what the prophet needs to say because the prophet is associated with the people, knows the people because the prophet is part of the people and the critiques from the prophet are also critiques of the prophet um, himself or herself uh, because they are part of the community as well. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah i mean no it comes across incredibly well in the book how embedded uh and, and you know and it strike and it tracks with a lot and also i should say too looking back on this 100 years later he was very right because if you look at what's happening right now in georgia i, I mean you can't you can't not read this and go yeah he's totally right it it has not gotten better <laughs> And so, right then, what is his value if not, um, if not, you know, um, if not optimism? And, and what's interesting about this book is, I don't think that a lot of times we think about rhetoric as having value unless it's effective or whatever. And in this case, there was nothing to affect. <laughs> he couldn't, yeah. right? So, I mean, I really liked the reframing of the book. I thought it was very well argued and fat and fascinating. And I mean, he, you really come away w with him. I just, I'm wondering. Maybe it's only because you needed to do the work, but it's really shocking that he hasn't made a bigger splash as an as an order. No, Lee, you just hit the nail on the head. I think you had nothing to affect. I like that because that 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 is it. When you are in the, when a prophet adopts this prophetic persona, the prophet is is is, is discerning that you know it is so broken. It the the, the, the this. This context, this world even, is so broken that um, nothing in the immediate is going to change. But do we quit? Do we give up? Do we not get up in the morning? No, we still get up. And I am called to say these things out and say these things out loud. 
and was doing this all the way up to uh, his death, May 8, 1915. I mean, you, I, Turner was the I told you, I, I almost the title of this book, um, the I told you so prophet, because <laughs> each and every time, each and every time something major, I mean, you know, something happens, right? You know, um, um, uh, Plessy v. Ferguson. I, I, you know, Turner was talking about the Supreme Court in 1883. Plessy v. Ferguson is 1896, where separate but equal becomes the law of the land. And Turner is noticing this happening in state after state, because he traveled uh, extensively, that people and the, and, the, and the state lawmakers were making laws that, that invoked the spirit, if, if, if not um, um, the, the perfect ideal, of Plessy v. v. Ferguson or separate but equal. And so in 1883, when the Supreme Court struck down the civil rights uh, law or the civil rights bill as being unconstitutional, that, you know, one of my favorite uh, phrases uh, in, in the entire book and, 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 and in Turner's entire lexicon, when he called the um, Supreme Court an abomination of Negro-hating demons. Uh, Bumble, yeah, an abominable conclave of Negro hating demons. Mm-hmm. And so the, 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 the point that Turner was making there, now, he's not winning any friends by critiquing the Supreme Court like that, but he's, he is bringing to bear, and I talk about the agitative rhetoric that is part of the prophetic tradition, um, going back to the 8th century uh, prophets in the Bible, but he's trying to bring attention to the fact that this stuff is happening whether we want to believe it or not. And there were a lot of black people, believe it or not, that did not see that. They were more conciliatory, trying to, okay, we can work this out. You know, um, I have a good friend who's telling me that they're not going to go, you know, uh, only only go so far. But Turner is not like that. Turner is like, no, this, this is redoing reconstruction. It's undoing all of what we fought for in the Civil War. And, and part of this is Turner's commitment to the Union during the Civil War. First African-American chaplain uh, in the armed forces. He fought um, um, for freedom um, with his, what he called his troops in the first United States colored uh, troops. I mean, he is as American as American can be, right? He's doing this and he's believing in this wholeheartedly. Reconstruction come. He believes in this. He wants to work in Reconstruct, becomes a politician in Georgia during Reconstruct. He wants to work this thing out. He wants to be conciliatory himself. But he begins to understand and believe that there is no um, um, reciprocation on the other end. And all uh, conservatives wanted to do at that time was to crush um, um, the reconstruction and to try to get back to the way it was. And Turner right. was one of the ones, early ones, to see that and just to call it out. And so that's why he moves to this pessimistic stage because he has this, he has history on his side. He's looking back and he's saying, you know, I tried to be conciliatory and I tried to do this. And, you know, we, we passed the 15 Amendment. I gave a wonderful speech. Um, with the 15th, uh, about the 15th Amendment and its passing. Uh, it was a beautiful speech, a good, I mean, 
people who who love America will just love this speech because it's it's just a nice 1870s. Just this love of country and this country is better now and we're gonna do right and we're gonna be right. Yeah, that lasted maybe a week or two. <laughs> yeah. And so so Turner gets to this point and um and yeah, he's not he's not, you know, um I think I think I talked about it in the last chapter when I said what we can learn from Turner um is this whole notion of um do I do I mention toxic optimism here? Uh can't remember now. I know it's in some of my writings. While I talk about this whole no, I think prophetic pessimism protects us from being uh, from having a toxic optimism. This whole notion, and we can see it today in our politicians. We can see it today where people are still holding out hope for this bipartisan, you know, work and this effort. And if Turner was here today, he would be shaking his head like, "Why? Why are you doing? This? Why are you?" Hey, don't, don't waste your time. You know, you know, you, let's plan for that not happening because um, there are certain segments of the population that don't want it to happen and they have the power to not make it happen. So um, Turner would be that, that, that person. And um, I'm, again, just so happy and glad that I have an opportunity to um, introduce him to the field. And I hope others... Um, his work is extensive. Others can pick up on it and um, do work on it. Well, and I think more than that, I mean, the book is really challenging the way that as a field, as a, I mean, isn't as a country, because re- I mean, rhetoric is so seeped into to the way we think about politics and mm-hmm. the, the, the idea that speeches are supposed to make people feel better, right? Because, <laughs> because, because it very much serves anti-Black interests if everything that comes out of everyone's mouth has to make... Because, like, of course, look at the double bind. I mean, and I'm not telling you, I'm telling the listener because you already know. But look at the double bind for who's allowed to make people feel bad in the public discourse, right? Right. White men get to make people feel bad. Uh, Now more and more white far-right women get to make people feel bad. But you can't get a word out of your mouth as a person of color if you don't have lots of nice things to say. My, my. And, (laughs) And we root... And we root it in this idea that like, well, rhetoric's supposed to be this, this, and that, and good oratories, la, 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 la. It's like, well, no, because Turner's a fabulous orator, but he's <laughs> operating under such different expectations about what speech should be doing. And I, I find it a very, I find it a total shift in how we think about how we're going to evaluate what counts as quality speech. And I really appreciate the work that you did because it's... um. It's it's deep, you know. There's a lot of depth to this book beyond just a, a rhetorical history of one speaker. I mean, this is a challenge to rhetorical traditions. I think, generally speaking. Wow, well, thank you for that. I um, um, I don't know. Have I thought about it in that way? This whole <laughs> challenging the rhetorical tradition. Uh, I know I've talked about you know that uh, um, in other settings. I yeah, I I think. Going back to what you said earlier about the expectation of speeches and how speeches should make us feel and stuff. Uh, and, and, and this is the point I wanted to make in the book as well, too, that Turner's speeches did make certain groups of people feel real good. And that is true. Yeah, yeah that is true. Like, yeah, go Turner. You know, I mean, even when he dies, you know, as a controversial figure, 25,000 people showed up at his funeral. Think about mm. that. I mean, he was so well known, so well known, um, 
and the love, especially from African Americans in the South, um, the sharecropping class, the the, the uh, poor African Americans, people who um, were uh, in prison. He spoke up a lot for imprisoned folk. I mean, I I don't even touch that in the book, but he did a lot of that work, um, um, even to the point of uh, asking the state to have chaplains um, in the prison. So uh, he's one of the first ones I've read that talked about um, chaplains in prison. Uh, and of course, that drawing on his chaplaincy uh, work um, with the armed forces. But, 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 but Turner is um, producing a rhetoric, uh, and I think you're right. I, yeah, he is challenging, he's definitely challenging the rhetorical history that we have constructed in late 19th century African-American rhetoric, and maybe even American rhetoric um, proper. That late 18, uh, late 19th century was a divorce Washington affair. Like those were the yeah. two major figures that were going, either you were Washingtonian or you were DuBosian. And here's Turner like, no, I have a third way. I have the, mm. uh, I know divorce, we can't integrate because uh, literally, he was like, like, white people would not accept that. If we can ever, if we can never get social equality. We can't get really any equality. You can't, you can't go into a restaurant uh, other than if you are a servant or nursing a baby. Um, uh, there is no integration for you. And then, of course, Washington, if we just submit and not vote and not do these things that, you know, human beings like to do and need to do and and we can't stand up for ourselves because we'll be afraid to get knocked down then we will pass that on down to our children at infinite and that's not a way to live so what is the third way the third way is this non-violent approach of not sitting in your oppression not supporting the oppression let's just get up and mm. so when people ask me you know in in classes or in groups like, you know, um, what, that, he was just being unrealistic and, you know, and maybe he was because, you know, a whole lot of money it took to get to Africa. But yeah. my question would be, how would America look if one million African-Americans did leave in late, uh, late 19th century? Left the South, just left. Well, and I think there's an argument to be made for Africa as a metaphor here too. Okay. Like I, I, he he probably meant it literally, but mm -hmm. you see this this echo throughout the, which is a kind of a point you come to in the conclusion when you say he sort of kicked off the black radical tradition that you can rhetorically leave ideological oppression. I mean, yeah. right? It's a different way of thinking about it, but but there's so there's still a way to reclaim that even if yeah, right? You're no, you're not so, physically going to uh, yeah. So no, no, he's yeah, exactly. So. So even the physical move, like a person leaving Memphis to go to Chicago, for instance, in the Great Migration 1, Great Migration 2, or Chicago to Detroit, or, or wherever. And then this whole notion of um, this emancipatory um, uh, liberation uh, or, or, or thinking that, you know, I am not going to be beholding to this idea uh, any longer. I am going to reclaim um, uh, my rhetorical mm -hmm. agency, and I'm going to do the things that I need to do. Uh, yeah, so 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 I ask those questions. I say, you know, how would Africa be? 
what would what, what would the difference be? And why did um, um, white landowners fight so vigorously to pass laws to to trap? And I used to wear trap to trap African Americans to continue working um, uh, on their lands for little or no money. Why did they do that? Because they understood that if that would have happened, that mm. the economic structure would have been totally different. You know, we right. just, um, we we began to understand um, about these massacres that have happened. Um, reconstruction on up um, um, by looking at Tulsa last week, um, mm. commemorating the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa massacre. And people began to, for the first time and, and that I have on, on social media and, and other places began to ask those questions. Wait a minute. Um, well, what, what happened to all of the property? And what about this whole notion of transfer of property, this inherent mm -hmm. property, uh, property and, and the jobs that were lost? You know, the people that were working, who were getting a, uh, a wage each and every week or two weeks or whatever, and then they lost out. And so Turner is saying, actually, I can make, a, excuse me, make an argument that he's making an economic argument that if we were just not support this any longer by getting up and leaving and going to a place uh, that um, maybe people would come to the table before we get on those ships, perhaps, and 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 want to talk a little bit about what it, what it could be like. So a difference. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and I feel we haven't really given any, I mean, you and I are both like good Michael Leffians, right? We love a close <laughs> reading and we haven't really gotten a chance to dig into the the meat of some of these speeches. So do we want to maybe turn now to, to actually, because we've done a great job. I mean, you're fabulous yeah. at the overview. <laughs> Is there a particular, uh, I mean, you open with this really excellent uh, exchange where Turner says, well, what, what's to say that America is civilized in the first place? And then you, you, you have the editorial where he sort of asks uh, people, you know, black folks to see themselves in God and for white people to see the right. hubris of assuming. I mean, there's all kinds of there's the speeches he did for McKinley. So is there one in particular that you like that we want to maybe do a little bit of uh, digging uh, into uh, for the let's audience? Let's see here. Uh, let's see. I mean, there's a, yeah, there's so much let's great close that. reading. I mean, I, yeah, I. Um, um, yeah, that the the notion, I, I, I guess, let's just maybe the last chapter. Uh, I mean, not the okay. last, but chapter six, where. You know, hell is an improvement. So as far as the Negro is concerned, Turner and the damning of America. And so Turner is full-throated now, prophetic pessimist, right? And, um, you know, I talk about, in this chapter, I talk about his views on race and how they kind of fluctuated over time. And I want to try to get to the, the the speech that really got him in trouble when he called the flag a contemptible rag and so um let's see yeah he he makes mention that that you know the flag should be spit upon <laughs> african americans the flag does not mean anything and um he really got some heat for that every everybody came out um uh, to 
about that. White and black press, the black press, you know, um, here it is, the Black-owned newspaper, the Atlanta Independent, criticized Turner as well, publishing in the Richmond Times-Dispatch, the editors of the Independent wrote, nobody takes Turner seriously. They called Turner a freak and wrote that his words were incendiary, treasonable, sacrilegious. Mm. They suggested that Turner's utterances now, no more represent the conservatism and representative character of the race in the state than did the convention. And they, mm. they just went on and just um, critiqued Turner. Um, uh, let's see, critiqued Turner mightily. And this is the black press. This is folk that he knew and knew well. But they even thought that he went uh, overboard. But of course, Turner, you know, um, defended himself. Uh, and he began to uh, come back. He talked about um, um, he was he really talked about he was misunderstood, but not in the po- political way of I was misquoted. He was like, I didn't right. say this, but I did say this. Now, <laughs> like this, <laughs> let me let me say this. And um, and basically, he was just saying that you know, uh, for black people, the flag you know does not carry the same meaning. That it does for white people in America. That's all. And and so, quote, God and nature help those who help themselves. If we had stood up like we should have done, we would not be puppets of degradation. Or if mm. we had manhood and dared to defend our rights, there would be no Jim Crow cause. I would say one more word, and you may infer my meaning without the consent of Negro. No cause will run in Georgia. I am sorry to say that they are running by a cowardice and disunited action. Mm. There is no harmony among us, no concern about our rights and the rights of our children and our children's children. He suggested that everyone who sits quietly was tying their children's children to the wheels of degradation for a hundred years to come. Turner reasoned that such people should not become parents <laughs> and that African-Americans must start to reclaim their own agency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and there's so much he's an I mean, he, he moves, he moves so swiftly through pessimism and realism and yeah. history and prophecy. And I mean, and looking back now, yeah, like I said, I mean, time has clearly vindicated his vision, right? <laughs> For, unfortunately, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I, yeah, it's always weird. Yeah. Well, yeah. One more quote, if I can. Uh, no, ha- have at it. Yeah. yeah no, no. Uh, thinking about Turner reflecting on his past, thinking about race and how wrong he was. And this is the move I tried to make. Uh, in the book, each chapter starts off as like a flashback, right? I, I try to go, like we were watching a movie and we go back in time and we see how Turner gets to this point. You know, it just don't show up pessimistic. It's a, it's a right. process, right? So here's one of the, uh, one of the uh, solid quotes that helped uh, uh, the reader understand Turner. Many years ago, I said in my speeches and articles for the public press that as soon as the Negro acquired education and wealth, we would be brought in touch with each other. Talk my white folks. But I have lived to see the day when the Negro graduated from the first uh, colleges of the land or the finest colleges of the land, abound upon the right and the left and thousands can count their wealth by hundreds of thousands of dollars, and instead of being looked upon and appreciated by the dominant race of the land, 
as more entitled to a favorable consideration, they are regarded in most instances as more pestiferous and dangerous and are the victims of more ridicule and contempt. Therefore, the theory is a phantom and every man with common sense fully realizes it. So this oh, the theory is a phantom is such right. a good line. <laughs> yeah, so this, this notion of uplift, uplift, like if you would just work hard, this is Washingtonian, work hard, save your money, thrift, don't worry about politics, don't worry about the, the public arena, just stay in your own life, like they were doing in Tulsa. Just have your own block. Just stay right there. Don't do any. Have everything you need right there. Don't do anything wrong, and um, everything will work out, and everything would be all right. And that was the theory that Turner called a phantom. Um, well, and Tulsa, Tulsa only happens what a couple years after Turner dies. Right, so I mean, these right, are very contemporary. Right, right. right. that's what's really terrifying. Yeah, I was thinking the same. Six years, right? Nineteen fifteen, mm-hmm. Turner dies, and then Tulsa happens in nineteen twenty. So this is six. And up until the book, you got 1906, you got the great fire that happened in Atlanta. You got all these other massacres, Wilmington in 1898, the Memphis massacre that I had done some research on in 1866. You got, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. Louisiana, you got I mean, all over the place. You got all of these. And, and, and yeah, and Turner is responding to the ones, of course, that he could respond to. And he's talking about them and critiquing um, the policing, the law enforcement, the lawyers, the system um, in total. I mean, he, he's like, you know, uh, mm, yeah, he was, he, oh, another quote, degradation bedets degradation. While respect and honor beget respect and honor. For not more than one man out of every hundred thousand rises above his environment, and our degradation in breeding contempt for each other every hour of the day, and it has gone on such an extent that nearly every colored person who can is trying to pass for white, and another portion is buying this deadly hair straightening drug. Talk about hair, and are trying to pass for Indians, Cubans, Mexicans, anything rather than Negro. I have had applications from churches as a bishop praying that I would not send them a black pastor. A third of our race today had rather be monstrosities than black gentlemen. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is this this is his note the the he is talking about this whole notion of colorism, this notion of um, lightning uh, a whitening creams that were being sold, these these tonics that were being sold to make your uh, uh, skin a shade or two uh, lighter or whiter, as the advertisements um, would say. Um, talking about, you know, good hair, bad hair type of dichotomy that's going on within the African-American community at the time. And Turner is trying to get people to appreciate the features of their African-Americanness, of their Blackness. And if you can't, his argument, if you can't see yourself as beautiful in and of yourself, then that's an issue. And then in chapter two, I bring up the religion point um, where he says God is a Negro. And the argument is, 
If you cannot even see, for you who are people of faith, if you cannot see the divine, the divine in uh, in your image or looking like you, then there's a problem. You, you will never be able to get out of believing that uh, white is always right and black is always wrong. And he yeah. he's talking, and this is what he's doing in like 1880, 1885, 1890, you know? So, um, yeah, in a lot of ways, he was way ahead of his time, way ahead of his time. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's one of those, I, I never know how to end these because you, you want to <laughs> say how wonderful and interesting the book is, but it's also, it's challenging and upsetting and also in a very productive way. So I like, I never know really the w- right way to say it, but certainly your presentation of, of, Mick, of Turner is, riveting and and interesting and deep and the way that he creates these threads of black radical thought that you can now see resonate in all of the people that came after him. I mean, I really enjoyed this book quite a bit. And I, I will say, I'm not normally like a rhetorical history biography person. So I was a little like, oh no, another, <laughs> another, but this is a, this is a totally different animal, this book. And I enjoyed it so much. And then of course I went back and read your first one because they're, they're sort of partners. Yay. And so once again, I just want to let, yeah, thank you for the, for the re- great read. And I'll be coming back to this book a lot, I think in future years. Um, do you want to let people know what you're up to about maybe about the hashtag HTM project, which I will link in the show notes if anybody wants oh. to learn more about it. Mm-hmm. Hello. Yeah. Hi. Do, oh, okay. Yeah. Anything you want to say for like for fi- final thoughts? Oh, final thoughts. Uh, first of all, Lee, thank you for having me uh, on the podcast and thank you for uh, taking seriously my work and uh, pushing it out there. And um, hopefully I can, uh, so, <laughs> I was telling somebody the other day, yeah, hopefully we can uh, bring back the rhetorical history, people, yeah, <laughs> you know, do some stuff. Right, right. Stuff. But, uh, um, uh, but in all seriousness, thank you again for this. And um, I am currently working on, matter of fact, um, a little bit later on today, I have to respond um, to the editors, um, to, well, the reviewers' revisions or, or suggestions of revision um, for the uh, speeches uh, of Bishop Turner. So I'm working on that mm. actually today, uh, a little bit later on today. I will be doing that. So hopefully that'll be out um, sometime next year uh, if all goes. Oh, that's ahead. exciting. So we're going to have uh, a lot of people appreciate the HMT uh, project, the site that's up that I got some speeches and writings of Turner. And I'm trying to collect all of them and get them up as soon as I can. But um, um, there, are, there have been some people, especially in history and um, like African-American history or church history, they really wanted a book or volume of speeches. So mm. I'll do that so you can have that and, and begin. Hopefully people can begin to look at those speeches and begin to start analyzing them, um, doing a close reading and, and seeing uh, what else is in those speeches? So that's one of the things that I'm doing. And I'm also working, uh, beginning a nice project. I am so excited about this. I'm beginning to, um, in my um, African-American public rhetoric and public address class, uh, we are going to begin uh, looking at the Colored Convention Project. Uh, and oh, yes. Yeah, we're going to be looking, uh, um, Dr. Pierre Foreman, and her team doing an excellent job there. But 
one of the things that we want to do is we want to analyze those speeches from the convention and um, begin a process of um, not only um, maybe doing a, uh, an edited collection of those speeches, but also a book of essays um, centered on those speeches as well. So, uh, and among the other things that I'm doing. So those are the two main things um, dealing with just oratory and public address um, that I'm doing. And um, hopefully um, when those come out, I can make another appearance and uh, talk about that as well. Yeah, and if you and your students do the uh, the collection of essays, we'll bring a, you and a couple of them on, and we can do a group a group chat. Yeah, we do that for edited volumes um, sometimes. Well, it's it's been wonderful. Like I said, the book was just absolutely a pleasure to read, and you're incredibly. Uh, I'm I'm glad that if uh, if I were Bishop Henry McNeil Turner, I would be glad that you were the one to bring me back into rhetorical consciousness. So I'll just leave it at that. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> So once again, to everyone listening, we've been chatting with Dr. Andre Johnson about the book that just came out, 2020, No Future in This Country, The Prophetic Pessimism of Bishop Henry McNeil Turner from University of Mississippi Press. And if you have a chance to pick up the book, please do. Uh, but if you're not inclined, maybe this has has sated your appetite, a very cool thing for you to do would be to buy a copy of the book and donate it to your local library. Uh, there are so many people who are not getting access to this, and you know, much of it because of systemic racism, that the people who really need to read this kind of work are the ones that have uh, the least access to it. So donating a copy to a library with a struggling budget is a wonderful thing to do. You can also, if you're on a university campus, request that your campus put a copy of the book on their shelves as well. Uh, and we'd just like to thank all of the university presses who help make work like this possible. And so with that, I will tell everyone, thank you. Um, quick little invitation to get vaccinated if you haven't done that yet. And uh, Dr. Johnson, do you want to leave us with any final thoughts? Um, thank you again for having me. And I just look forward to whatever is next. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank everyone. Have a nice summer. We'll talk to you soon. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.